Some of the most memorable cultural artifacts are those that surprise us. I mean, whether it's a book or a work of literature, a TV show, a movie, sometimes even a song, right? There's this like hum that comes with it, a, a hushed, have you, have you seen it? Have you read it? Have you heard it? Followed with a, did you know? And there's always this surprise, those who say, of course, this is what Danette does all the time, by the way, I knew all the time. I knew the surprise. I, I, I knew what was about to happen, right? And there, uh, the, the hidden ending, someone who has the inside scoop, although you would never know if they knew because they never really declared it while sitting in the seats or flipping the pages. There's so many great stories. Lost, How I Met Your Mother, This Is Us, like they all have these surprising twists, things you didn't expect. Fight Club, The Girl on the Train, It Ends With Us. The empire strikes back, right? I'm your father. The prestige, if you, I'm sorry, spoiler alert, I should have said. The prestige, Knives Out, Inception, Seven. Now, I know I'm dating myself here a little bit, but when I saw The Sixth Sense, right, this, this was such a cultural artifact. Bruce Willis, a child psychologist who returns home with his wife Anna after winning a big reward, and a former patient breaks into their home and starts shooting. And then we fast forward, and Malcolm is now working with a nine-year-old boy. His name is Cole, and the thing about Cole is he sees dead people, right? So Malcolm starts working with Cole and his visions, and it's, it's a scary movie, and it's a thrilling movie, and of course, at the end, the, the secret... The plot twist is revealed. I remember the buzz about this movie, to see it in the theater, to be in the know, to keep the secrets, allow the hidden to remain hidden. In an interview, the filmmaker M. Night Shyamalan says, when you're left with, what you're left with at the end of the movie should tell you what you saw. When you stick the landing, you're giving them the keys to say, this is how to interpret everything you just watched. You're giving them the keys to interpret everything they have seen. Like, like scene by scene, puzzle piece by puzzle piece, what's hidden becomes revealed. I think about those 90s posters, 3D posters, right? where you stare and stare and relax your eyes and then you see it and you can't stop seeing it. Now, as we embark into Esther today, we hold such an artifact in our hands. It is a story told grandly with a twist, actually many twists, something hidden and unveiled. Now, Esther doesn't start out that way. In chapter 1, we're introduced to King Xerxes. What I want you to see first is the exposed, the unhidden, the unbridled power of this king. Right? We, we see the extent of his reign. This kingdom of Persia, and Xerxes is this king. We're told he rules over 
127 provinces from India all the way to Egypt. Now this is sometime around 480 BC. Now to add some context to this, we were just in 1st and 2nd Kings, Elijah and Elisha. And some 400 years have passed between them and Xerxes. Now in that time, the Assyrians have been conquered by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians have now been conquered by the Persians. Israel, as a people, has gone off into exile. And under Xerxes' father, Darius, some have been allowed to return. So this is where we are in the story. Some Jews have begun the process of returning to their homeland. Maybe, probably, the most devout, the most recognized, they've begun. Nehemiah has begun building the walls. Ezra has started pulling out the dirty scrolls once again. Rebuilding the rubble of Jerusalem. But many remain in Persia. Xerxes has just crushed three rebellions. One in Egypt, two in Babylon. And even while there are constant threats, make no mistake, Xerxes is the ruler of the world. The empire is so vast, so powerful, it has four capital cities. One of them is Susa. In the modern-day border of Iran and Iraq, it's a, a winter residence for the king. A palace that is so magnificent that the writer wants you to see this is where the king's power is clearly seen. We catch a glimpse of it, right, in verses 6 and 7. The, golden, the garden had hangings of white and blue, blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver and a mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. The royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. This is the only place in the Old Testament where the narrator describes in such detail the background environment of the scene. And this is the work of storytelling. See the opulence, the lavishness. Now for us, like it's hard for us as Westerners who, as wealthy as we are, to understand the immensity of, its, of the king's wealth. Many of us have gardens. Many of us have draperies. Many of us even have like silver-ish, gold-ish, fake silver or gold-ish cups. And we have a plethora of wine. The garden portico here has these long, flowing, beautiful uh, flowers and draperies. Floors of granite and crystal and marble and mother of pearl. Gold is everywhere. Now, most of us don't have gold couches. And here, the king, this is where the king shows off his power with a party. It's a party to end all parties. It's a party that lasts 180 days, six months. Imagine the Montanza lasting six months. Where, where the expectation is first... To attend, right? We read, all of his nobles and officials attend the party. All the military leaders are there at the party. Then all the princes and the nobles of all the 127 provinces 
our Ad Xerxes party for six months. Now imagine that. The power and the peacekeeping that has been maintained, or the threat that's been maintained, to allow all these, all this royalty to be at this one place for this period of time. And if it wasn't enough, at the end of the six months, there's one more keg party for the people who are in the city. All the common folk come. This is where Isaac comes and does his keg, head, his keg handstand, right, Isaac? In verse 8, notice, this is all by what? The king's command. Each guest allowed to drink without restriction. There's no true drink law. There's gold cups all around. Everyone had one filled to the brim with the king's wine. And stewards are instructed to be ready to fill every cup when it's empty. The expectation is that everyone would drink, would indulge themselves in the extravagance. And while all the men gathered in this party, there's a second party, a party within the party hosted by the queen. We have a party within a party and an after party. Imagine the scope. Imagine the cost. The unbridled power of this king. Unlimited wealth. Unrivaled pretension. Everyone who's anyone is here, and this king commands them all. Why? Why is the king doing this? Now, we're not given all the answers here. Is it to celebrate the crushing of the rebellions? Is it... Is it to assure that no more might occur? I mean, why would you rebel against such a generous king? Is there something hidden here? Have you ever experienced the kicker? Like, the kicker is the, the hidden agenda. You all, myself included, we all get bombarded with, with messages all the time. Things that seem too good to be true. Sometimes I, I get it scrolling the socials. Other times, Danette sends me something. All the goods spread before you. Look at this. This is amazing. And then comes the kicker. The kicker for this party appears to be wrapped up with grease. While Xerxes rules over the known world, there is trouble looming in the West. The Greeks are looming. Darius, his father, struggled against them in the First Persian War. And now a second one seems to be on the horizon. So most commentators think the purpose of this party is the kicker. The reason for all these keg stands and hors d'oeuvres and 180 days, the party within the party and the after party, is that Xerxes has a hidden agenda. He needs something. He needs their allegiance. He needs the nobles and the princes and the war leaders to vow fidelity to him as the king. He, he needs them to support what's about to come with money and Troops and people, the battle at Thermopylae looms. If you've seen the movie 300 or heard of it, that's what's described in that movie. And, and what's wrapped up in, in all of this is identification, like Xerxes represents Persia. This is who we are. This is what we do. 
We have everything. We can do anything. Absolute power is ours. The gods are on our side. And this is where the, uh, we arrive at the ironic twist of chapter 1. To kind of cap this party, to bring home this point of the king's vast power and wealth and just his overall awesomeness, on the last day of the party, the king commands, and notice this, just as a further layer of the king's powers, he commands and the people obey. The princes come, the, the Susans come, and now he commands his most prized servants, the, the seven eunuchs, to summon the queen, to summon her to appear at the party, to, to leave the party for the women and come and be with the party with all the, citizen, all the male citizens of Persia and all the, the leaders and the authority to come and appear at this party in her royal, royal crown. Now, most commentators believe that's all that she was to be wearing. The, the queen is summoned to display her beauty, a royal striptease for the court and the kingdom of this king. And that queen, she represents Mother Persia. This is the, the beauty of this kingdom. And the king is to command her and she is to obey. Look at her beauty. This can, then, this can all be yours, Xerxes is saying, if you follow me. The king is so rash, so, so merry with wine that he summons his wife. When, when normally a concubine or another member of the king's harem would perform such an act, the king's power here is to, to be fully exposed for all to see. He invites his crowning glory, the beautiful Vashti, clothed only in crown. This woman bows before me. Everyone look, look at the power of the king. But Vashti refuses. She refuses such objectification. She, she refuses to unconceal herself. She refuses a loss of dignity. Even though Xerxes commands it, she refuses. And in refusing, what's at stake for her? Everything. And we see this in the king's reaction, which composes the rest of chapter 1. It's ironic it's comical. Vasti's refusal of the king's command results in what? His fierce and driving anger. Now let's stop here for a second because I think this is where your and I's stories can merge with the king. I want you to do something for me. I want you to do this thing. Uh, we used to do this with uh, some of our men's group. I want you all to close your eyes. I want you to picture yourself sitting on the top of, on a throne, on the top of a small hill. Stretched out before you is a wide, grassy plain. There are rolling hills and fence rows, a group of trees. Now spread out in the grassy area below you are all the people you interact with in your life. Each of them exists in a place that symbolizes your relationship to them. From your throne, picture your family. See their individual faces. Now, start to position them in the valley. Are they close to you or far away or somewhere in between? 
Think about the people from your work or school. Picture their faces. Where are they at in proximity to you in your kingdom? Think about people from here, church. Picture their faces. Put them somewhere in your valley. And your friends. Picture your friends' faces in your mind. Put them in your valley. This valley represents your kingdom, your realm. From where you sit, look across your realm and what you see. And let that sink in for just a second. All those people who are in your life, in some way, in your realm. Who are they? Where are they? What's the basis of their proximity to you? Why are some close and some far away? What, what happens in your realm? Now you can open your eyes. What happens in this realm when somebody does something that you can't control? What happens in your realm when something happens to them that you can't control? What happens when you command or nudge them or try to persuade them and they don't respond? What happens when the absolute power that you have in that realm is rebuffed, rejected? What happens when you're rejected? What happens to you? Anger, followed by fear, right? This is what the king does. He gets angry, and then he gets afraid. He doubles down. He he summons his legal experts. What should we do? His foolishness in commanding Vashti to expose herself exposes him as a fool. The wise men are brief. Memucon suggests that if word gets out that Vashti has defied the king, it will, there will result a feminist uprising in the empire. All the women will be responding to such, inspired by such a rebellion. You see the fear? Everything will be destabilized. If, if your wife won't submit to your demands, he says, then what will stop all our wives? And Vashti does symbolize Mother Persia to these women. What you need, King Xerxes, is another law, another decree. I can't tell you how many times I've made the people in my realm subject to another law, another command, another way of squeezing control. Where crisis looms because my power is shown to be impotent at moving those closest to me, their attitudes, their hearts, their lives. Everything then becomes a crisis. I've done it with my kids. I've done it in the church. I've done it with Danette. I've done it with my family. I've even acted a tyrant with God. Enacting law after law after law upon myself, trying to get my dead heart to respond, shaming myself with words, 
masochistic actions to get myself to do what it won't do. Friends, hear me. This is what happens when that realm that you pictured, that kingdom, begins to topple. Under the weight of sin, under the weight of people's decisions, under the weight of your hubris and pride, they topple. They, they teeter, and then they topple, and everything becomes a crisis, which tempts you to think, I've got to regain control. A punishment, a law, something to keep it from shaking. Because you can't stand that your kingdom is shaking. You can't stand what might happen if your kingdom melts away. Now the irony here is thick. The, the king asks for legal advice from his advisors, but what he gets is pragmatic advice. And this is the second time he commands for something to be given that's not given. When he commanded Vashti, he didn't receive it. Now let's stop here just for one second because... What, oftentimes what we men want from women is we want women to do what we want them to do. And the curse of the fall kind of speaks to this wrestling. Right? The curse of the fall, man will rule over you, woman. And so a woman then uses whatever power is at her disposal to then achieve it over a man. And that's the battle of the sexes. It's the curse of the fall. Women find power in giving it, and men want to receive it. This is the wound of original sin, and I think, I think it's appropriate to grieve this in our text. Because we've tried to in the wake of uh, our world, to use patriarchy as a solution to this. And now in the sexual revolution to flip the tables and think that that can somehow do it. The Barbie movie, by the way, at least in part, makes this point for you. No spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> Thanks, Will. Like, he... He's livid with his wife and accepts it from his counselors, pleased with their counsel, even if it isn't what he wanted. Topple, topple, topple. Notice he advised punishment. The advised punishment is no different than what Queen Vashti has already decided for herself. She doesn't want to come before the king. Her punishment, she cannot come into his presence. The counselors have been summoned because the king can't control his wife with a decree. And their advice? How about another decree? And the final irony, the counselors are so terrified by Vashti's disobedience to the command. The solution? Another command. Send out a royal decree telling everyone what Vashti has done. The writer wants you and I to see the irony of the little laws we use to control, to abate our fear 
and quiet our anger. Vashti is deposed. We're told a new queen will be chosen to take her place, one that will give honor to her husband. And if you know the story of Esther, I'm not going to give it all away to you today, but that's ironic. Vashti refuses to unconceal herself, and in the process of such a refusal, she exposes a hidden power. You see, Esther is this book of reversals. Do you see Vashti's hidden power in a refusal to unconceal? Xerxes may sit on the top of the world snapping his fingers, but what becomes clear, he isn't as in control as he thinks. Xerxes isn't who he thinks he is. And this is one of the things about the book of Esther. There's these couplets. You have Vashti and Esther to compare, Mordecai and Haman, and then Xerxes. And who are we to compare Xerxes to? Well, it's God. Right, God is the true king of the world. His control and authority extends to all things. His, his dwelling place is in the heavens and the earth that he made, in the temple and the tabernacle, described in more exquisite detail, the, the interior patterned after a garden. The prophets proclaim that this God will summon all the nations to his city to feast with him, the king of the world. See the comparison. God is the true king. Xerxes is a parody. And fast forward to our day, City Press. We are inching towards 2024. And the parody has already begun. God is the comparison to Xerxes. Like Xerxes, um, we want to melt the hearts of men and women and get them to do what we want. That's what's hidden in our hearts. Peer over your kingdom. When Vashti refuses, what happens? Is this not what we want? Love, yes, but love that responds to us. To, to what we demand. Xerxes can't control the human heart, even with all his power. And the more that that's exposed, the more absurd he gets. But God? What's crazy about Esther, God isn't mentioned by name. There aren't any prayers. The closest we get is a fast that happens. What's ignited in Vashti's refusal is the search for a new queen. And that search will lead, of course, to Esther, who will be subjected to a few hidden commands and secret motives of her own, leading the Jews in Persia to the precipice of genocide. And the question the author is getting us to ask, where is God? Why is he absent? When our kingdoms totter... And when life becomes unbearable, when evil advances, when suffering is suffocating you, what question do you ask, church? Where was God? Where is he? Is this your question? When your kingdom starts to unravel, when, when something happens that is out of your control, God, God haunts the sacred text of Esther. Even though 
Nothing out of the ordinary or miraculous or overtly supernatural happens. There's, there's all sorts of ways that God will show himself. But what I want you to know is that concealment is the thing. Vashti is deposed because she conceals herself. The Bible, uh, presence to absence. Like, think about this in the Bible, how this works out. Right? We start in Genesis where God is present with Adam and Eve. And then sin happens. And that presence is strained. God used to walk with them in the cool of the day, yet now the, the first family is sent away east of Eden. Think about how that plays out. God shows up in theophanies of himself, but never in the same way he was in the garden. He appears to Abraham through visitors. He comes to the Exodus to redeem the people, and he appears in what? A burning bush, and later a cloud and a fire. Like we get these miraculous things, but as the the story marches along, how does God's presence seem to go? We're given kings in the story, there to be a representation to the people, but they fail. And so the prophets invade the scene. And, and the last of the like prophets, Elisha and Elijah, are the last ones to do these miraculous things. They, like we talked about all throughout, Elisha is the, the very presence of God to the people of Israel. But then we, we march along and you go to Nehemiah and, and Ezra as the people return to the land and there's very little talk of anything that happens that resembles what happened before. And as you get to Esther, God's name isn't even mentioned. Seemingly, people left on their own with their kingdoms trying to figure it out. As a result, there's this kind of tension that has developed between the reality of God's seeming absence and the belief in God's abiding presence. Think about that for a second. And then we're given Jesus. Jesus is the resolution of the tension. He resolves the tension not by explaining the mystery of the presence and absence of God, but by embodying both of them at the same time. In Jesus, paradoxically, the hidden God is revealed and the revealed God is hidden. On the one hand, the hidden God is revealed. In Jesus, God is made manifest in the flesh. Angels announce his coming. Miracles punctuate his ministry. God speaks through him and in him. He is literally the word made flesh. In him, God is with us. Like it's radical, demonstrative. And thus, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the final and greatest revelation of God. The, the one in whom the hidden God has been made manifest. He represents God's presence to you and I. Yet, yet, on the other hand, Jesus, the revealed God, is hidden. In one sense, this is because in Jesus, God is in the world, but frequently, he goes unrecognized. People dismiss him as insane or evil. They, they fail to recognize or acknowledge who he truly is. God is in their midst, yet they cannot or will not see but in another sense, even more profoundly, Jesus enters into your and I's experience. And thus the experience, the experiences, the absence of God himself. That is, just as he represents God's presence to us, he also represents God's absence to us. When Jesus dies on the cross, 
He takes upon his lips the cry of the psalmist, agonizing the terrifying reality that God has rescinded and hidden his face. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That God would take on human flesh and even more scandalously that God would die in the flesh puts him completely out of reach of our rational minds. Divine incarnation, divine crucifixion, they're the boldest expressions of God's statement. My thoughts, they're not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. So in taking on human flesh in the womb of Mary and dying on the cross, God reveals himself, but in a very sense, conceals himself. And when you experience suffering and failure and abandonment, that same suffering, failure, and abandonment exhibited on Calvary, you feel the hiddenness of God. And so what's, what's able to cross that, that bridge? God hidden in the cross, not because the crucifixion falsifies or obscures any part of God's character, but because the truth is revealed in a crucified Savior. And that's inaccessible, we're told in the Bible, if you can't see that without faith. You must have faith to see that. And faith happens when you and I can't see. So what I want you to hear this morning is this, this wrestling of God's hiddenness, of his hidden power, of his hidden name in the book of Esther, that in Jesus it is resolved. And it's resolved because it's embodied. He embodies it in a way so it becomes a reality. Not an abstract reality, not a philosophical reality, but a very personal reality. In the person of Jesus, that's where you're to place your faith. That's where you're to attach your faith. When, you're, when your kingdoms are top, toppling, Instead of running to another law, instead of trying to control in your fear, the gospel reminds you that you are to grapple with God in faith. Faith in what has yet to be revealed and faith in the promises that have been made and are revealed, that's where your faith is to be attached. Not blind, a faith in a God who has done things in history, in your life, in Jesus and yet, still a bunch of stuff. Like you don't know. When you, when you look at your kingdom, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that's what makes it so unnerving. That's why you and I get like Xerxes. Because we don't like having to be placed in a place where we can't see. And yet God keeps beckoning you. If you want to see, place your faith in Jesus Christ. The mystery of the incarnation, the shock of the crucifixion become the lenses through which we are to see this God who is present to us in solidarity with us and yet at other times seems remote, seems to be absent. 
We don't need Xerxes. We don't need to try to be Xerxes. For Xerxes can't melt our hearts. And Xerxes can't give us eyes of faith. Vashti shows in her concealment the hidden God. Friends, Christ is not the only revelation of God's hidden presence in the world. Christ is the ultimate in body of God's pattern of salvation and deliverance in this book that we're about to study in Esther. And this God and his gospel are the only thing powerful enough and beautiful enough to help you. To help you as you live this life with all those people that you love, that you saw, all the people in your realm. All the people in your realm that some feel physically, emotionally, spiritually good, safe to you, and some who you're scared and worried about where they're at and what you've done to them to make them where they're at. I invite you this morning to speak those names to your hidden God. Speak those names of those people. In the tottering of your kingdom, speak those names to God. Give them to him. For he alone, not you, not all your schemes, not all your laws, not all your shame. They can't do anything. They're powerless. But God can melt the hearts of men and women. Let's pray. God, help us as we come to the table. Help us to see uh, the hidden Christ in bread and wine and juice. Help us to see the hidden Christ in our neighbor. That Jesus is very present in his body and the members that make his body up. Help us to see that you're our head. That from you everything else flows and moves and has its being. Help us to see the ways we... uh, Attempt to grapple for control in our anger and our fear, just like Xerxes. And help us to confess it to you and to our neighbor. To you and the very people that we've tried to do that to. We pray that out of all of that, you would bring the life that we so desperately are seeking. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.